There is an underlying assumption in today's text, which is that you are not immune to evil. Evil will touch you some way, somehow. Injustice will be inflicted upon you at some point in your life. In this age, Christians do not have some kind of protective barrier surrounding us that prevents evil from reaching us. At some point in your life, you will have to deal with the effects of evil, and particularly with an evil for which there is no justice in this life, either because the perpetrator of that evil is never brought to justice or because the punishment which they receive is not proportionate to the suffering which they've inflicted. In order that we not leave this talk of evil in the realm of the abstract, let me provide you with some examples of the kind of evil that Paul touches upon in today's passage. Before I do, though, let me just say that I'm not preaching this morning with anyone's specific circumstances in mind. Therefore, if I say something that touches on one of your specific circumstances, it is purely coincidental, nay, it's providential, and it just goes to prove that the prevalence of evil in this dark and fallen world is immense. First of all, I think that Paul has persecution at the forefront of his mind in these verses. Not only because he's just mentioned persecution as a present reality for the church in verse 14, but also because persecution was a fact of life for Christians throughout the first three centuries of the church, and it remains a fact of life even today for much of global Christianity. The Roman congregation to which Paul wrote would, in eight years or so after receiving this letter, would suffer an intense persecution, the likes of which the church had not seen up to that point. In and around the year 64 AD, the Roman emperor Nero would persecute the church of Rome severely and violently a persecution that would eventually claim the lives of both the apostles Paul and Peter. But persecution of the church is not merely a matter of past history. It is a present and future reality for the church. Let me give you some examples. In mid-February of this year, just a few months ago, Islamic extremists murdered two church leaders in eastern Burkina Faso in West Africa announcing to the community that they would not tolerate Christianity in the area. On February 10th, the extremists arrived at the home of a well-known church leader named Lankawande Babrabile and shot him to death in front of his wife. Lankawande, who served in the village of Seba, near the border with Niger, was known for his Christian witness in the community, especially among the nomadic Fulani people. He is survived by his wife and nine children. Then, using the vehicle stolen from Lankawande, the terrorists then went to the home of Pastor Tindando Omar on February 13th and killed him and the other members of his family. Zhang Wenxi, also known as Deacon Zhang, is an ethnically Korean Christian who lived and ministered in Changbai, China, a town located on China's border with North Korea. 
when North Koreans illegally visited Chongbai to conduct business or purchase items they could sell on the black market or seek medicine or other forms of help, Deacon Jung often provided them with warm clothing, food, and supplies for their return to North Korea. And he also shared the gospel with any who would listen. But in November 2014, Deacon Jong was abducted in China, taken to Korea, and sentenced to 15 years in prison. Since his imprisonment, several former prisoners have reported seeing or hearing about him. Open Doors International, an evangelical ministry dedicated to serving the persecuted church worldwide, estimates that in the last 12 months alone, 2,983 Christians were killed for their faith. 9,488 churches and Christian properties were attacked or destroyed, and 3,711 were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. Persecution is very much a present reality for the global church. And if you think persecution is merely a reality for believers who live in third world countries and faraway places like China or Burkina Faso, then I want to remind you the fact that all who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That is, the more openly and radically committed you are to following Christ, the more persecution you will face from this world, whether the people of this world or the governing authorities in this world. I'm reading a book right now on the history of the Puritans, and it's amazing how even in so-called Christian nations like England and Scotland... They were persecuted, often violently, even in those colonies that they themselves founded within a generation or so of spiritual decline. Those still committed to orthodox Puritan principles were persecuted by those who ostensibly believed the same things. The persecution of the faithful is a present reality in the lives of all who would live godly in Christ Jesus in this present age, says Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. The greater the transformation of Christians, the greater the transformation of churches, the greater distinction that exists between you and the outside world, the more that world will hate you. And you need to know how to handle that kind of opposition because the call of this text And the example of the faithful throughout the ages is not merely to endure persecution, but to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That was primarily our subject last week. But I don't think that Paul has in mind only the evil of persecution in verses 17 to 21. I think the application is much broader than that. I think it encompasses every evil which may be inflicted upon the children of God at the hands of wicked men in this present age. This is not only because Paul does not specify persecution in verses 17 to 21. Rather, he leaves it in broad terms like repay no one evil for evil. But also because every evil which befalls the children of God today was also in the world in Paul's day. Paul had people in his churches who were abused as children. He had people in his churches who had unspeakable evils done to them by strangers or by those that they trusted. Paul had women in his churches who had endured rape. 
Paul had people in his churches whose spouses abused them or betrayed them or abandoned them or left them to pick up the remnants of their shattered lives. Paul had people in his churches who had been defrauded by con artists and thieves with or unscrupulous businessmen. In short, Paul had to counsel people who carried around the very same baggage that we do. There's nothing new under the sun. Evil, perverse, violent, hideous evil was in the world then, just as it is in the world today. The Roman church needed to know how to respond to it, and so do we. Now, I'm well aware that in a congregation this size, I am speaking to a people with a tremendous amount of hurt in their past, in their present, and in their future. Some of you have suffered unspeakable evils. Some of you will. Many of you have shared those stories with me. This text is not primarily about petty grudges. Although by addressing the more severe, Paul also addresses the less severe as well. This text rather is about life altering evil. So as we begin, I want to challenge you this morning. If you would be transformed by the Spirit through the living word today, you've got to drag that evil out of the dark corners of your past, and you need to bring it into the light of this text so that the Spirit of God may may deal with it. Let the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teach you how to overcome that evil which was done to you with good, in order that you may finally be free. The main point of this passage is stated in verse 21. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That verse summarizes all of verses 17 to 20. The first half of verse 21, do not be overcome with evil, is the summary of the two negative prohibitions found at the beginning of verses 17 and 19, okay? Do not be overcome with evil means repay no one evil for evil, verse 17. And it means never avenge yourselves, verse 19. That's how you would overcome evil or be overcome by evil. Okay, by repaying someone for what they've done to you, by avenging yourselves. Paul says, don't do that. The second half of verse 21, but overcome evil with good, is the summary of the positive exhortations which follow those negative prohibitions. Okay, that's the structure of this passage. Everything builds up to... That main point stated in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we have two questions that need to be answered this morning. What does it mean to be overcome by evil? And what does it mean to overcome evil with good? The answer to the first question, what does it mean to be overcome by evil is obvious because it's stated for us in verses 17 and 19. To be overcome by evil is to lash out at the one who has inflicted evil upon you in retaliation, verse 17, and revenge, verse 19. Okay. But I want to go deeper than that. 
I want to go underneath the physical act of revenge and retaliation. I want to expose the heart that lies underneath it, the heart that seeks vengeance. Because there's many who do not actually act out in revenge who would love to do so and would in a moment if the opportunity presented itself. Never actually taking revenge, never actually harming the person who did evil to you, but spending your days and your nights dreaming about how you would if only you could is not holy. And it's not what Paul's talking about. If that's you, you're just as overcome, you're just as enslaved by evil as if you actually acted out the vengeance upon the person or persons who harmed you. Remember that the theme of Romans 12 from beginning to end is transformation, metamorphosis from the inside out. Paul is not interested in external behaviors divorced from internal desires. Do not be overcome by evil goes deeper than don't take revenge. It goes down to do not even wish evil upon those who have done evil to you. See, the battle against evil is a battle that will be fought in the battleground of your mind and your heart. A person who is overcome by evil is one who allows their mind to be consumed by the evil that's been inflicted upon them. All of their thoughts are directed toward the injury or the abuse that they have suffered. That, that evil, that abuse, that injury is on their mind when they wake up in the, mor- in the morning. It's what they dwell upon when they lay their head down at night. It dominates their days and it haunts their dreams. Before long, their self-identity is defined by the evil that they've suffered such that they begin to think of themselves primarily as a victim, a victim of betrayal, a victim of abuse, a victim of slander, a victim of gossip, or a victim of whatever form of evil that they've suffered. When they think of themselves, they think of themselves first as a victim. That is a way to be overcome by evil. If victim becomes the defining characteristic of your life, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and it prevents you from moving on and moving forward with life and walking in the peace and the joy which Christ died that you would possess. You can be overcome by evil by being overcome by bitterness just as much as being overcome with vengeance. Rather, we need to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. So recognize that this battle against evil will be fought first and foremost in your mind. And you need to win the victory there by taking your thoughts captive and making them obedient to the will of Christ revealed in this verse. You are not a victim of evil. That is not who you are. You are a child of God and an heir of his everlasting kingdom who has endured evil By the will of God for your greater good and Christ's greater glory. 
You need to wrap your head around how the sovereignty of God intersects with the evil that you've experienced in order that you may be free from it. So don't be overcome by evil. Don't let it consume your thoughts. Don't let it define and therefore defile your life. Don't harbor bitterness or nurse sinister thoughts of vengeance. Let go of it and rest in the good and the wise providence of God, which causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But not being overcome by evil is only one half of verse 21. Not being consumed by the evil you've suffered is only half the battle. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he did not merely say, don't seek vengeance upon your enemies. He didn't merely say, don't give back an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. He went further, saying, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And likewise, Paul says not only do not be overcome by evil, but he follows it up with, but overcome evil with good. How? How do you overcome evil, whether it be persecution or abuse or betrayal or deceit or theft or slander? How do you overcome horrific evil with good? I think Paul gives us two ways to overcome evil with good in these verses. I'm just going to briefly touch on the first and we'll spend the remainder of our time on the second. The first way to overcome evil with good is found in verses 17 and 18. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, the reason I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this first point is because we touched on it last week when we dealt with the issue of persecution in verses 14 through 16. Paul's point in these verses is once again that while persecution is inevitable in this present age for all who will live godly in Christ Jesus, some of it, some evil can be avoided simply by living an upright and honorable life and seeking to live in peace and harmony with your neighbors. One of the ways to overcome evil with good is to live in such a way that the only grounds an individual or the state governing authorities have have against you, the only charges which they can bring against you is that you're a follower of Christ and they hate Christ. In other words, live such an exemplary, godly, honorable life that there is no other cause for them to do you evil other than the fact that they hate the God that you love. Peter expresses a very similar sentiment in his first epistle. For instance, in 1 Peter 2.12, he writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He then tells Christians to be subject to the authority of the state and to honor those officials who are in authority over them, saying, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He then adds, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then later in chapter 4, he repeats the same theme. 
If you are insulted, insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or a troublesome meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Suffering for the sake of Christ is inevitable. Indeed, Peter says, to this you have been called. But it is no glory to suffer evil because you are being wicked or deceitful or lazy or obnoxious. So let's let this verse serve as a reminder to First Baptist Nixa. It is inevitable that persecution will come. It's inevitable that the world will hate you as you follow Christ faithfully. Our love and our faith and our devotion to Jesus will eventually put us at odds with the surrounding culture and with the governing authorities. When that day comes, and until then, however... Let our conduct be such that the only true charge they can bring against you is that you're a faithful follower of Jesus. A lot of the evil and abuse that people suffer could be avoided if they would walk in godliness and holiness and faithfulness and kindness and truth. That's the first point that Paul gives. Okay, Live an honorable life. Towards outsiders. If, if at all possible, so far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. But there is another kind of evil which befalls the children of God and has little to do with the fact that we are followers of Christ. Rather, it has everything to do with the fact that we live in an evil world filled with evil people. So the question now becomes, how do we overcome the evil of man which comes in the form of abuse, betrayal, slander, any kind of harm that doesn't come as a result of following Christ, but simply because the men and the women of this age who surround us are wicked? How does a believer overcome the evil of sexual abuse suffered as a child or of an At the hands of an uncle or a neighbor or some trusted authority. How does a believer overcome evil when a drunk driver smashes into your child's car and takes their life? How does a believer overcome evil when a spouse betrays that most sacred of covenant vows and has an affair? How does a believer overcome evil when a business partner embezzles money from your company and you're the one that ends up losing everything? How does a believer overcome evil when the perpetrator of that evil evades justice and seems to suffer no harm? That's what I'm interested in in the remainder of this sermon. Because that's the kind of evil that is addressed in verses 19 and 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, says Paul, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
According to verse 19, to be overcome by evil would be to exact vengeance, to avenge yourself on the one who inflicted the evil upon you, to take justice into your own hands and make that person pay for what he or she has done. That's what it would mean to be overcome by evil. And the way to overcome evil with good, according to verse 19, is to trust in the wrath of God. Now, we're not normally accustomed to making the wrath of God the object of our faith. Usually the Bible points us in the direction of trusting in the mercy of God. But that's not what Paul says here. And there's a reason. We should not avenge ourselves for the evil done to us, but rather should leave it, that is the evildoer, to the wrath of God because God has sworn to repay the evildoer and carry out vengeance and justice upon them for their wickedness. So the question that you need to ask yourself is, do I trust in the wrath and the justice of God? Do I believe that the judge of all the earth will do what is right? That justice will be one day satisfied? That God will let no evil fall through the cracks or slip through his fingers without punishing it to the full extent of his divine fury? Do you trust God in his wrath and justice? Or... Do you think that you need to take matters into your own hands to climb up onto God's judgment throne and to handle matters yourself? One day, every evil, every injustice will be punished and will receive its due reward, which is the fierce wrath of a just and holy God. Every sin, without exception, will receive its due recompense. One of two things will most certainly happen to that person who committed that atrocity against you. Either the grace of God will one day awaken them to their sin and they will repent and they will embrace Christ as their Savior and their Redeemer and their Lord, in which case their sin, including the sin they committed against you, was placed upon the shoulders of Christ, the substitute, and the wrath of God do them for their sin, including the sin they committed against you, has been poured out upon Jesus in his death at the cross. Or, on the other hand, they will not repent and embrace Christ by faith. In which case, they will bear their sin, including the sin they committed against you, to the judgment seat, at which time God, the righteous judge, will sentence them to everlasting hell, where they will suffer the fierce wrath of God forever, always burning, but never consumed. In either case... Their repentance or their unrepentance, their salvation or their damnation, I submit to you that the penalty either suffered in hell or suffered in Christ at the cross is sufficient for you. If you're not satisfied with the justice of God, either in the final judgment and in hell or in Christ at the cross, then what you're doing is denying the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. The very same atonement, by the way, on which you claim to rest your hope of salvation. 
If you're not satisfied with the justice of God carried out in hell, then I submit to you that you haven't yet contemplated the dread of that place. In either case, you're robbing God of his glory when you try to take justice into your own hands and seek that vengeance which belongs to him alone. Don't do that. Let God be God. Let him handle the wrath. You be about mercy. Beloved, we need to get to the point where we cherish the cross of Christ so much that we, I know this is a radical thought, that we would count it a joy to spend eternity with our abuser, our betrayer, the evildoer who hurt us so badly, knowing because we know that the same blood which atoned for our sin atoned for theirs as well. And we love the blood and the mercy and the atonement of Christ. We must get to the point where we tremble before the wrath of God to such an extent that we wouldn't want anyone, and by anyone I mean the one who sinned against you, to ever face that wrath apart from a mediator. Trusting in the wrath of God poured out either upon Christ at the cross or poured out upon the sinner in hell is how you overcome evil with good. Justice will be done. Vengeance will come. You don't have to worry about getting the justice that you deserve. God will see to that one way or the other. The burden of justice is lifted from your shoulders. Now you are free to give yourself to mercy. And that's the thrust of verse 20. Do not seek vengeance upon those who wrong you, rather show them mercy. Verse 20 is a quotation from Proverbs 25, 21. And and frankly, it's unclear exactly what this phrase means. For by so doing, by doing good to the one who did evil to you, you will heap burning coals on their head. A few commentators note that every time the Bible uses this image of coals of fire, it's used as a symbol of divine judgment and anger. You can look up examples of that in Psalm 11.5 and Psalm 140 and verse 9. The point then, they say, is that when you show mercy to the one who did evil to you, then their judgment increases with their rejection of your overtures of mercy and reconciliation. Your goodness and mercy to them increases their judgment because their evil was not able to overcome your good. One pastor writes this, Our desire is that they would repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. But if they don't, The very love that we are showing increases the weight of wrath on their head. The more of God's mercy that people reject, the more wrath they heap up upon themselves. Other commentators take a different tact. They note that the goal of verses 9 to 21 from beginning to end is love. So they believe that heat burning coals upon his head is a metaphor for making them feel intense shame for the evil that they've done to you, which you've only given back to them in good, and that that shame would then lead them to repentance. In other words, their repentance is the motive for you doing good to them. Acting kindly toward our enemies is a means of leading them to be ashamed of their conduct toward us, and perhaps then to repent and turn to the Lord whose love we embody. 
However, the same commentator who wrote that later admits that the linguistic or textual basis for this view is not all that one would wish. In other words, heaping burning coals is never used as a good thing anywhere else in Scripture. So whether you opt for the first view or you opt for the second view, whichever view you take, the point, the outcome is the same. When you leave evil to the wrath of God, when you trust God to exact justice and vengeance, then you are free to show mercy to those who have been evil to you in hopes that they may be led to repentance and faith and find in Christ the mercy of God. That would be the supreme way to overcome evil with good. But... If your acts of mercy and love are rejected, then their guilt is increased all the more and wrath will come down upon their heads on the last day. That would also be to overcome evil with good. Your good in showing them mercy and God's good in exacting justice. Either way, you're free from the burden of bitterness, from the burden of malice, of vengeance, of retaliation. You're free to forgive, to love, to show mercy, which is the path of joy. You do not overcome other people's sins by hating them, by nursing a grudge against them, by plotting evil against them. You do not overcome evil by becoming enslaved to bitterness, filled with malice and and anger and vitriol, which poisons every other relationship in your life. You overcome evil by trusting in the wrath of God and hoping in the mercy of God, which frees you to show mercy and forgiveness even to those who have committed the worst kind of evil against you or against those you love. We have come, I think, in verse 21 to the essence of the transformed life. Forgiveness of our enemies is the core of the Christian ethic. It, this is freedom in Christ. And until you get to this place, you're not free. You're overcome, you're conquered, you're enslaved by that evil which was committed against you. You're a slave to bitterness, to unforgiveness, to unbelief, and it will destroy you from the inside out. Bitterness is not the path of joy, and unforgiveness is not the path of everlasting life. Listen one more time to the words of Christ. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Then he says in the next chapter, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. You see what he's saying? The sons of the father are those and only those who love their enemies. If you don't love your enemies, you're not a son of the father. 
Did you hear that? If you don't love, that is forgive your enemies, you're not a son of the Father. Because you haven't understood and embraced the mercy of God in Christ. If you don't forgive others their sins, neither will the Father in heaven forgive you of yours. You won't enter into heaven carrying the burden of bitterness and unforgiveness because bitterness and unforgiveness is merely the fruit of unbelief. It says, I don't trust God to take care of justice. This is a serious salvation issue. This is not some sort of second tier step in the Christian life. Forgiveness is of the essence of the Christian life. So lay down your bitterness and unforgiveness today and be free in Christ. But some of you are going to say, I... Pastor Tim, you don't know what was done to me. I've tried and I can't forgive what they did. And I would say, you're right, you can't. But whoever gave you the idea that walking in the Christian life was something that was possible for natural man. The the theme of these sermons has not been the fruit of the natural church. The fruit of the unregenerate church is the fruit of the spiritual church that has the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. No, you can't. But in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, through faith, you can and you must. You must walk by the Spirit, leaning on His grace and His power to let go of bitterness, to forgive that person from the heart and to love the one who has hurt you. So as we conclude this morning, I'm going to invite you to bow with me. And I'm going to invite you to join me in a prayer. If you're ready to be free, then pray these words with me from the heart. My Father... I trust you with my hurt, with my wound. I trust you with the evil that was done to me. And then name it. Say to the Lord, I will leave it to the wrath of God. I won't try to climb up upon your judgment throne And fulfill your responsibility. I will trust you. To do all things right. I ask this morning for the grace. And the power of the Holy Spirit. To forgive from the heart. Help me. To love my enemy. As Christ loved his enemies. And laid down his life to save them. Give me. The grace to do the same. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.